0: We'd like to welcome a supporter, sponsor, and friend of both Dr. Nelson and myself, and that's Nationwide. And Nationwide has decided to support the Courageous Conversation podcast. So on behalf of Dr. Nelson, I would like to express our sincerest appreciation to the people at Nationwide for their support of the Courageous Conversation podcast.
1: Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Good
0: morning, Phil, good to see you again. Good to see you again,
2: Peter. I'm in Mississippi right now, as you know.
0: So you're not far from LA, right? Lower Alabama?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just one state over, that's right.
0: Well, Phil, our guest today, more than anything else, is is a good personal friend. That's the most important thing that I can say about Julie Hudash. We have known each other for about 20 years, basically I read an article in the newspaper, the Orange County Register, about the work that Julie was doing to help support kids and make them into leaders and and have them help influence the future of our country. And I said, wow, this is the kind of person I want to meet. And so I picked up the phone and I called Julie and I said, how would you like some money? True story. And uh, we met. Uh, She had an office that was so small, I had to go outside to turn around um, before I could come in and sit down. And um, for the last 20 years, we've worked together, or I've worked with Julie in support of her organization called Team Kids. And and Julie brings a very varied background. And uh, basically, she's a visionary in trying to direct the future of our country by bringing together elementary school kids the police the fire the school districts to help uh build confidence and build leaders in our next generation and you know you and i have been talking for over a year about the challenges that this country faces and the future of this country hopefully will be in the hands of great children as a result of the work that Julie is doing so one of the times that we met um, I challenged Julie because my kids had actually gone through the program that she um, advocates and I we were talking about the fact that she was doing this in Irvine and I said well that's you know that's just a very easy population to work with I said You've got to look at a much more diverse population, and I think I challenged Julie because now not only is she working in Irvine but she's working in Compton and Brooklyn and long beach and a variety of other. uh, let's just say less homogeneous communities uh, more challenging communities and Arlington Virginia as well, and the work that has come out of this the research that's come out of this in terms of the ability to change the dynamic for the future of our country, is really why I'm so excited to have Julie uh, joining us today. So Julie Hudash, thank you so much for joining us. How'd I do on the intro?
1: Fantastic. (laughs)
2: Julie, I must say that it was was an easy sell for me. I think, um, first of all, I I love the premise of your organization. um developing kids that understand that they can make a difference uh and 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 promoting that self-confidence in a positive way uh and and helping them understand their their potential impact on society and most you know and most of our conversations have been about a about the grassroots effort and Probably what I admire the most about what I've learned about you and your organization is the patience you must have to understand how long it takes to have that impact, and that there is no quick fix, uh, uh, and to be willing to invest in our future through our children is it, it 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 touches my heart. So I'm glad I'm I'm really honored to have you here, and I'm looking forward to forward to this conversation.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I I think you really nailed it on the head there about patience. I feel like if I have one strength, it's not giving up, it's being persistence, persistent. I feel like you know, education in our country um, could be criminal, um, from what I've seen, um, in the systems of um, just the lack of equity and opportunity and mentors, opportunities to be leaders. Um, and I, I, you know, Team Kids started in Irvine um, and then we went to Newport Beach. I was so excited to really grow into communities where kids don't have as many mentors and opportunities. Um, but funding pulled us into Newport Beach. So on we went um, mm-hmm. and actually being there helped provide some funding in order for us to grow. But um, it just, I really believe that we're not going to solve any of these issues until young people are have the opportunity to grow up and know that they matter and that they're significant. All kids, you know, Um, I truly believe um, all our kids are at risk. Unfortunately, risk is not spread evenly across demographics. Um, We teach in very wealthy communities um, in Newport Beach and Palos Verdes, obviously Irvine. um, And we have the highest risk of of, um, depression, attempted and completed suicide a lot of pressure on kids to be perfect and everything they do um and then we teach in communities um our largest community is compton we're actually just getting ready to to uh deliver the teen kids uh challenge which i'll share more about it every single kindergarten through eighth grade school in compton so every single student age 5 to 14 will be um empowered as a leader in their community through teen kids and um and and our kids all just need to matter for the right reasons and know people you know, with power see them. And so it's taken a lot of patience. So your comment about patience is certainly um, hits at the core of, of, of what's been the most challenging because we're trying to change the culture of schools and education around, around character development and empowerment and leadership and how important that is especially in the, with the social emotional needs of kids today but we're also trying to change the way communities are empowered for kids changing government and police departments and fire departments and so you can't do that easy government doesn't move fast i move fast um but it's taken <laughs> a lot of patience to um realize that to create real systemic change you have to change the in Impact and the commitment of stakeholders and communities. So thank you for that, because I think that's probably um, sums up my 20 years as a founder of a nonprofit the most, is patience and persistence and not giving up on kids and knowing there's mountains to move. Um, and we got to keep moving them because those are the ones that truly impact opportunities and futures for our children.
2: Well, if you've listened to any of our, you know, of our conversations, you know that uh, frequently Peter and I get mired into uh, it's not, it. it's a marathon, not a sprint, yeah. you know, and, um, and you can't, you can't make these, you have to change people to make these real changes, you know, and, and you have to educate people to the, to the institutional obstacles that have been placed for some populations, some intentional, some non-intentional, but they're still there. And until you get people to recognize those obstacles, uh, 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 people assume that everything's equal uh, uh, and and therefore specific interventions aren't needed. So uh, I definitely want to give you a chance to talk about some of your programs in detail for the sake of our audience so that they know exactly what you're doing. Uh, but again, welcome aboard and, and I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Oh, I am as well. Very much so. You yeah. know, we can't trust people we don't know. So I believe, um, you know, it is about building those human relationships. It's about getting to know people. So whether it's the homeless or the cops or those teenagers, or, you know, we we kind of bulk people into categories. And um, Teen Kids is really about breaking down those barriers, you know, one brick at a time. And let's get to know the humanity behind people and intention behind people and and i it's been 20 years of amazing stories about what happens when people just get to know the human beings behind and build trust and get to know each other and i really think that's way the way we can stop stereotyping people i'm team kids and not team adults because i'm so disappointed in most of the adults in this country right now so if i was team adults i I think i might change career paths
0: (laughs) let me ask you a question julie because this is I'm not sure I even ever asked you this, but this the concept of of bringing together schools, um, public safety in terms of fire and police, what was the epiphany that that you came up with that said, you know, it's not just the schools, but I've got to bring in the public safety officers as well to truly help build this trust and and break down any fear factors that might have existed. so where where did this epiphany come from?
1: I would love to say it was part of the master plan, but it was purely serendipitous. It started with our first program 20 years ago um, when we learned of a little boy who was dying of a very uh, potentially fatal heart defect and needed to get to the Mayo Clinic for heart surgery. I had started the program after being in grad school, even though I never finished my master's degree, I was pregnant with our third child, Um, but really learning about um, the importance of empowering kids to believe that they have a life of purpose, that they really can do those things that they're really passionate about and creating communities that support that. So when we learned about this little boy that was dying um, through the fire department, I shared that with the kids at our very first program 20 years ago at Vista Verde. And these kids were like, we're gonna save his life. That's what we wanna do. We're gonna raise enough money to get this little boy to the Mayo Clinic, which was about $20,000. But I'm telling you, there was no stopping them. So they started selling popsicles. They wanted to have a pancake breakfast. At this time, I had contacted the Orange County Fire Authority, um, who were trying to raise money. A fire captain named Steve McHale and a paramedic, um, Jim Cass, and um, I said, "Hey, I have a school of kids, and they want to raise money to help save Jeremy's life." And they were kind of Captain Steve was kind of like, "Oh, brother, you know what? Are they going to bring us a bunch of pocket change? Like we don't have time. This little boy is dying. Like we don't have time to make these kids feel good." it was really patronizing and he admits it to this day. And so the kids started raising money and they were selling popsicles and asking for money and really contributing more than the fire department was raising at that point. Had a pancake breakfast with the LA Times, Orange County Register there. And uh, the story in the paper was this very, this beautiful little boy who was dying and these kids who were unstoppable. They were like Incredible. We read in the newspaper kids that are sick all the time, and and you might read the article about a child that will have cancer. But how often do you write a check? The story was so compelling that checks started pouring in, and we're like, oh my gosh, like we're not even a nonprofit yet. Um, mm-hmm. And so then we really partnered with the fire department. We did this big pancake breakfast. Um, the LA Times ran a story, and shortly after, there was a celebrity in Hollywood that contacted Captain Steve McHale at the fire station and said, hey, how much money do you need to get this boy to the Mayo Clinic? and we still needed $18,000. So as long as he stayed anonymous, um, the next day we had an $18,000 cashier's check at the fire station mailbox. Mm. That story hit the newspaper, and then a very wealthy uh, gentleman donated his jet, his pilot, and his fuel um, to fly Jeremy and the paramedic and his family to the Mayo Clinic for heart surgery. And it was because of that, um, police. the police got involved at that time, too, of them saying, these little kids are doing what we couldn't do. Like, why are we not supporting, getting behind them? Why are we not like supporting? Why do we think that was silly and cute and funny when they wanted to help? And why do we dismiss them? But in the process, what I witnessed was like, wow, it's not about me. It's about my job in making sure these kids meet People with power in their community and build these relationships, build better police and firefighters to believe in kids and seeing that interaction that was so powerful. So it was never part of a master plan. Um, and it was just undeniable to see kids um, have uniformed police and firefighters up on stage at the kickoff saying, You know, you're, we can't do this job without you. You're helping the homeless, you're helping the animals at the animal shelter can we be on your team? We just want to be on your team. And you'd feel the shift of power to the kids and the kids are like, they're on our team. They want to be on our team, you know? And so it was that first um, interaction. To close out the circle, um, Jeremy's 23, 24 years old today. Um, Captain Steve, my big naysayer became my founding board president. Um, as a fire captain. He said, I don't know what you were doing, Julie, but this is the best thing we've ever done. So he helped me start uh, team kids as a fire captain. Um, And so then police were involved. And um, again, we're not a police program and I'm not blindly pro-police, but it's really amazing to see this, this fundamental relationship building and some of that research I'll get to share later. But so it was really the kids that brought this public safety partnership together. A few months after that first program, 9/11 hit. So we were founded in March before September 11, and so when 9/11 hit, we had just been working with police and fire. So our kids at all of our schools wanted to thank our police department and our fire department um, in light of September 11. So we did a big event supporting the kids in New York. But uh, ever since then, I realize that's really the differentiator of what we do: is we're empowering kids, but we're empowering communities. We're changing systemic. Um, ways of collaboration and sharing resources of, of key stakeholders with power and communities to support kids and to understand kids. And so now it's it's there's no other organization in the in the nation that does what we do. There's a lot of youth service organizations, Boys and Girls Clubs, Girls Inc. Amazing organizations, but we're in the school during the day. We work with every kid in the school during their school day, and uh, the only one that that mobilizes public safety as caring mentors and not enforcers of anything besides the power of kids
2: how many people how many volunteers do you have in your organization and how many employees do you have in your organization we have
1: 12 on staff right now um, that are working in our schools but it's our 20th anniversary and we're just about to go through a major major growth um, kind of movement um, with our research that's now been published in the APA journal and uh, the the uh, Journal of Experimental Criminology. So we've, we've done, and I can share a little bit more about our research, but um, I've been patient, as you said at the onset, um, to really get everything we need to be, uh, to accomplish to become a national model. And that is to become empirically validated. Um, we have about 30,000 students every school year, nine months go through our five-week program. And um, over 400,000 kids have gone through our five-week program in their schools, which our flagship program is called the Team Kids Challenge. Um,
2: so give us a little more detail about your program.
1: Sure. So our program kind of like a service leadership empowerment boot camp that's in schools. Um, it's a five-week program, and it has a bookends, a kickoff assembly at the beginning, and a youth-led charity philanthropic carnival at the end. But we train all of our in uh, on-duty police and fire mentors about a three-hour training before they work with us. Um, they're trained on the developmental assets and how to work with kids and build assets in kids. And um, they teach, They our teen kids coach is the teacher. Um, we call them a coach instead of a teacher because kids are with teachers all day. Um, but we do a kickoff assembly that's very powerful. Um, we show a video about um, kids, little kids answering the question, if they had a magic wand, how would they change the world? And we have kids come up on stage and talk about what they would change in the world if they had a magic wand. Many of them, I would I would vote to be president of the United States if I could. Um, and they talk about real issues. I think it's always an eye-opener to teachers and principals of just how heavy the issues are that are weighing on kids these days. Um, they talk about equity um, and racism and finding a cure for cancer and uh, helping animals, um, ending homelessness and just really, really important issues. Um, but the kickoff assembly has a lot of media, super high energy. Our police and firefighters talk about how they work as a team. For example, a car accident or if a child is lost, gets lost. And then we do this, this amazing exercise called our Relay to End Hunger. And we have one team that our kids, like a child, a police officer, a child, a firefighter, a child. So this like represents the community the best it could be. And the other team is just one child. And in the middle is a big, huge bucket of food. And we talk about the importance of feeding the hungry. And we pretend the teams are even. And we say, i your marks, that go. And one team is like the bucket brigade. And they do great because everyone's working together. And then the other kid is running like crazy all by himself, back and forth. And he or she is trying their best. And the kids are cheering for their team, and and it's the debrief that's so powerful um, with our police and fire. And they say, you know, what did you guys think of this? And of course, the team with with the side of the audience with one is like that wasn't fair. Hmm. Nobody else was helping him. He had to work all by himself. You know, that was they had more people on their team. And so we interview them, and of course, the team with the police and fire. The kids are like, it was so cool working with the police and firefighters because they were part of our team. We got so much more food to feed the hungry. And then we talk to the single child and, and inadvertently, you know, they always say, It was so hard, I'm tired, you know, but I still got some food. And so the debrief is really talking to kids about, you know, this child who's by themselves made a huge difference. You know, they're running like crazy to make a difference, but they helped feed people that are hungry. You know, sometimes you don't have you can't wait for a team. If you see someone getting bullied, someone's being racist, someone, you have to stand up and do the right thing. You don't wait till you have a team. Sometimes you got to do it on your own. But look how much more we got done when we worked as a team. And that's what Team Kids is. This is going to be five weeks of you as a student body working with your police officers, with your firefighters, with your coach, and everybody at your school is going to work as hard as this guy over here. But we're going to work as a team to help the animals, to feed the hungry, to help kids who have cancer, to create equity, all of those things that kids are passionate about. And then the five-week program each week is a different issue. Um so um, like one issue uh, we use a lot is for the animal shelters, which I know is probably close to your heart. Um, kids bring in gently used blankets and towels to go to the animal shelter. But each week the whole school learns about a different important issue in the community and they work as a team to raise like four bins of food for the hungry, write letters to kids who are in the hospital. And so that's what the program looks like. But the magic is we invite the two oldest grades of the school. So fifth and sixth grade usually to serve on the volunteer team kids leadership team. And that means they give up their lunch recess once a week, sometimes twice, to work as a team. And that's the magic of building protective factors and empowerment in these kids before they go to middle school where there's so many um, potentially high-risk situations kids get involved in. And so they vote as a group on one issue that they wanna make a difference in the world And then they break into small groups, they start, they get a business plan, they create a carnival game or a business, they learn what is a philanthropist, what is an entrepreneur, Um, and they learn how to start a business, which is a carnival game. So they vote on their charity, they vote on their issue, they start a business, and then at the end of the program they run this fully youth-led, amazing youth-led carnival for all the younger kids at the school. And 100% of the money that they raise through learning how to be a business person and a philanthropist, 100% of that money goes to whatever charity that they voted on. So police and fire come to that carnival and they play the games, they get shaving cream mohawks, they let kids paint their fingernails, um, they congratulate the kids for helping um, the community. And then we have one last leadership team and we bring a representative from that charity. So if the kids voted for Make-A-Wish, we bring a representative to Make-A-Wish to their final meeting. And our coaches talk to the kids. Do you remember when we asked you what a philanthropist was? Nobody knew. Every one of you is a philanthropist. You picked a charity, you worked hard, you raised money and you gave it away. And that representative talks to the kids about their mission and thanks the kids for for choosing their mission, um, explains where their money's going and the kids present a big check. and you can hear a pin drop. The boys, we get so many boys involved in service because of public safety, I think, too. It's kind of a cool thing. They get to be in charge of their school. We lose too many boys to compassion and leadership um, that kind of drop out. Girls tend to stay more involved in scouting or... Um, so anyways, it's just it just mobilizes and changes the whole school. And that is across um, all of our schools, but I think most powerful in our, our communities of color. Um, In Compton, Dr. Moon, who's one of my favorite principals, um, she said, Julie, my students, um, they, they sometimes feel like they're the problem because they get free backpacks, they get free turkeys at Thanksgiving, and they internalize the fact that people have to give them things. And she told me, and I hear this from a lot of principals, but she said, this is the first time my kids feel like the solution and not the problem kids donated food that they got from a food pantry that went back to the food pantry. But in the process, they saw themselves and they physically became um, a solution, someone who could help others. And so it's really powerful and uh, a lot to share in that way of just the different kind of demographics and communities we work in and where I think our mission is most needed.
2: I definitely connect with uh, Dr. Moon's uh, perspective. Um, while you were talking, I, I. I I I made the uh, mental realization that uh, uh, it, it's it's a short turnaround from being a victim yeah. to being uh, a facilitator, uh, a, a a helper, and it's just and it's just a, a a switch of the mind once people understand the internal power that they actually have, and we can raise we can develop permanent victims right. if we are always reminding them that they're less than others instead of instead of illustrating that there are some worse than they are worse off than they are and 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 how they can help and i think intuitively maybe not may, maybe even inobtrusively that's the secret to your programs yeah. You know, you, you can you can transform victims into heroes very easily by just giving them a chance. And totally agree. And 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 your story illustrates even the the epiphanies that the uh, fire chief uh, made, et cetera, is based on and and Peter and I talk about this all all the time. The the issue of perspective you know we get wrapped as adults we get wrapped up we were trained to train kids right rather than to see them as partners to you know um uh uh somehow with the nuclear when the nuclear family shrunk because of the successes we've had in society we've forgotten that uh when that during those periods when we were having seven eight nine children it was because we saw them as team members
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: you know and they were and and they helped they put they participated in survival of the family mm-hmm. and advancement of the family and now you know one one of the um one of the uh most uh, impactful uh news items I remember seeing was Tom Brokaw uh, was following a, uh, uh, a young lady in Bangladesh. She was uh, seven or eight years old and she was a, she was leading her four-year-old brother through the streets. Their parents had died of AIDS. This was when the AIDS epidemic had just started in Africa and they followed her for a day and she had a basket that she carried in one hand and she took her brother by the other Mm -hmm. and they would go through their day and she would lead her brother and at the end of the day she built a fire and pulled wheat out of the basket and made bread baked the bread and gave it to her brother and then and fed her brother for the night then pulled a, a blanket out of that basket and they it by the side of the street and then tom brokaw has a face-to-face view of the camera and says and what did your eight-year-old do today and i'm sitting here thinking that i wouldn't have even allowed my eight-year-old to turn on my gas furnace
1: Our kids are so much more capable and they're so much better than us. I mean, honestly, I know that sounds bad, but like, I'll, give me a seven, eight or nine year old and I'll show you the best humans on our planet. Yeah. Why is it? You know, I think as a country, we absolutely fail our kids. We fail them because we don't give them a chance to put those dreams in action. We don't trust them. We don't, we protect them, overly protect them. And, you know, our kids have such a wide, you know, that window of compassion is wide open and the desire to affect to change is so strong for justice. For and, and what do we do? We say go study for your spelling tests. Like we don't, we don't fan those fires, the sparks that are already in them. And then we as adults say, Let me teach you, let me impart my great wisdom. When in fact, if we would be quiet, we would actually be inspired um, by the dreams and by the commitment that they have. And and, so- then,
2: and then we criticize them for not being as industrious as. We expect right. them to be
1: it's just and then you know what happens is that's why we focus on elementary school developmentally why it is so critical to show up and support kids when they're young and they have dreams they haven't given up on themselves yet they haven't given up and thought that well, i was going to be a vet that's stupid i could never be a vet or i could i want to be the president i want to find a cure for cancer i wanted to save the rainforest i want to save the panda bears you know what there's there's those initial passion and spark in kids that we don't flame as a country and then when they're teenagers, we say, hey, you should do some leadership. It'll help you go to college. So then it's self-serving and at least it's them. I mean, I've seen a lot of teenagers fall in love with, with justice or whatever they're working on um, by having that exposure. But the opportunities aren't equitable. I will tell you at Teen Kids, something I'm very proud of. Um, about seven years ago, I think it was 2014, 7% of the kids that went through our program Um, were approved for title one. And in our country, you know, title one also means communities of color, because sadly, that's where poverty, poverty and race
2: is concentrated,
1: right? And it's just it's it's that's part of the problem, right? Because I do believe all the systems are impacted in a racist way. And so um, but 7% um, today, 73% of our kids are are, our team kids participants are in schools and uh, that are title one so i realized um and part of it was around the george floyd time that our program is good for all kids so like yes. I told you, all kids are at risk in our wealthy communities kids just need an opportunity to learn that they can do something without their parents doing everything for them right it's about right. That. in our communities of color some p- kids have parents that are home Our school in East New York, which Peter's familiar with, makes our biggest city Compton, you know, look like Costa Mesa. There's no city, community in the state of California that's anywhere near where we are in East New York, Brooklyn. The school there, it's 100% black. Uh, 60% of the kids are either foster care or or homeless. Can you imagine? Those are the most resilient, amazing kids. But I see the diversity. So say when we ask kids, if you got a magic wand, what would you change in the world? Perfect example. Corona Del Mar, do you know what kids say? I want to save the panda bears, right? I mean, they're so blissfully, they're not aware of the challenges in the world. When we did our first program at PS 149 in East New York Brooklyn, we asked the same question. And I had a 10-year-old girl say, stop raping. Mm that's what she would change if she had a magic wand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was about gun violence and drug use and violence. And here we are with NYPD and FDNY and listening to the voice of the kids. And it was then, which, which, which was actually before um, George Floyd's murder, where I was like, okay, yeah, we have an amazing opportunity that should be nationwide and it will be someday. It is what police and firefighters and every community should be doing for kids. There's a school and a police and a fire department. Then invest in your kids instead of arresting kids. You know, let's let's focus on that. Um, But I really thought long and hard, and I thought, you know, team kids in our wealthy communities helps kids get further ahead that are already ahead. Um, But when I bring team kids into a community where kids don't have as many mentors, they don't have a PE teacher and a piano teacher and a baseball coach. Like a lot of the kids don't have those things. Some kids have an uncle who's incarcerated, or one parent, or parents that are working. And it's so much more of, I think, a better use of our resources to create extra investment, because the kids are equally capable and brilliant and across the board. It has nothing oh. to do. It's just opportunities. It's there's, there's an inequitable opportunity for leadership and mentorship and opportunities to to be resilient and to feel empowered so now we're just doing a big shift and i it's just where where the need is best invested i guess
2: i love what you just said peter knows i'm about to get deep now into <laughs> into some of the things you, you just promoted but everything you said resonated with me however uh, i want to remind all of us that communities of color versus the the well-healed communities whether they're predominantly white or not, is not the division. It is, as you said so eloquently, it is the lack of opportunities that has affected these communities differently. And and of course we can see a much greater impact in those poorer communities than we're going to see in the well-heeled ones. But being veterinarians, the panda bear issue is an important issue too. You know, uh, everybody wants kids to be kids, you know, for as long as they can be. And if that's the worst thing that that's in their life, then they're very blessed and they're very lucky. And and our problem is, is that we want everybody to be there at some point, Absolutely. right? 100%. However, the panda bear issue is more of a climate change issue, which is a real issue. And they see it as panda bears, as a cute, fuzzy thing. And, and you know, being a veterinarian, I understand the bigger issue behind what they see, right? My sadness is that you're not going to get that as a big issue coming out of Compton, that you're not likely to have a child in Compton see that as a issue because they are too busy with more basal needs. And there's a difference yes but BIPOC communities are a artificial creation in our society that has been politicized and legally restricted and tendered to create what we have to deal with you know and what I love about you I'm beginning to love you more and more. The more you talk, by the way, uh, what I love about you and your program is is that you see you see kids as kids, and we have to take them where they are. And even those that you are uh, uh, nurturing that already has the piano teacher and the and the karate teacher and all those other mentors, as opposed to someone in a BIPOC community who has to take a bus to see a veterinarian for five miles before they can volunteer or has to take a bus to another community just to buy groceries. We have different needs for different people, for different communities. And I guess segregated help does not help our society in in inclusion.
1: I mean, I think I agree with you. I think you're right. It's about equity, right? So it's like certain kids in wealthier communities, um, which was kind of how I grew up before I became more aware of issues around race. Um, there's there's a lack of of hardship and like just sadness of being aware of so much. Yes. Right, so yes. that we want all kids to not be worried about those things.
2: This is what not- we call privilege.
1: So our kids in Compton pick animals, so it's always homelessness, animals, and kids that have cancer. Why? Because kids love animals. That's why right. I feel like there's a whole other discussion around working with you and bringing animal sciences to kids because the, all kids care about animals. So our kids yes. in Phoenix, which is another part of the Cartwright School District that kids have a, just a lot of challenges and trauma, early childhood trauma, but all kids love animals and they do pick them. It's just some kids in certain communities can love animals, but they also think, I don't have my, I always see my mom, she doesn't have enough money to pay bills or, you know, they have suffered different childhood trauma in their lives. And so they still care about animals, but all kids should be able to care about animals. But our kids, certain kids um, just have to carry so much more weight, right?
2: I didn't mean to imply that uh, BIPOC kids don't care about animals.
1: Right, but they have Uh, so much else.
2: That's right. We all we all have to set our priorities, right? And when you say what one thing do you want to deal with, then what comes to the top of the list is the most threatening thing that you want to deal with. Totally. It doesn't mean that you don't have other concerns or other uh, or other shared likes, likes, and bothers. You know, uh, you have a magic wand. Yes
1: there's a gang outside my door. Right. Gunshot. Right. Like you're going to go to what, what is in the way of your safety, right?
2: Exactly. Well, again, it's it's Maslow's trying, you know, those priorities are going to be set first by safety and then by nurturing. And that's everybody. But if you happen to be in a privileged community.
1: Yeah.
2: Where most of that is already taken care. I don't have to worry about a house. I don't have to worry about food. I don't have to worry about support. I don't even have to worry about mentors.
1: Yeah. One of the things about your podcast that really, um, cause I, I was, I started listening when I was walking and then I like, I only have time for a 30 minute walk and I'd listen to one, and I'm like, oh, the other one's only 30, 30- I could do one more. So you helped me get in shape, um, you to Phil and Peter. Just the willingness to be vulnerable. I, I just really commend you. Um, I feel like I'm kind of at a point now where I can talk about race. And I know for white people, it's like, oh, it makes me uncomfortable. Well, tough luck, you know? You're not living with the things that make life actually uncomfortable if you have an uncomfortable moment, you know? And it really, um, there was one moment when you guys, Peter, you were sharing about your nanny. And I'm telling you that like hit me so hard because I thought here in the best case scenario was a woman who was accepted in your family, right? Like best right. case scenario, she was included and had a meaningful role. Um, but Phil, when you were saying who was with her family when she was with yours, mm-hmm. you no, know, you realize that like that's the best case, right? Your, your your nanny was respected and appreciated. But yeah, like when you look at that, and so um, since George Floyd's murder, I I've really I've become more aware of things that I think intuitively I was aware of I'm in the trenches so like I see I'm often the only white person in a room to let you know whether it's a, a school board meeting or a funeral and then
2: we're then we're, we're blood sisters and brothers
1: <laughs> Well, I, guess I am. And, and it's funny I have people who make fun of me and, and I guess there's a reverse stereo stereotype of me that is far less painful to carry than the other way around But people will say, oh, and this is Julie. She's a white lady from Irvine. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I thought Makai Ali is president of the Compton School Board. And we presented together at the California State School Board Conference in San Francisco last year. And I go, here's the deal, Makai, you can throw me under the bus. Go for it. It's a good laugh. But don't leave me there. You do not leave me there. You then say, she is here all the time with her staff in our school. She cares so much. And... um, So that's the work. I know I was at a funeral once for uh, a friend of mine who passed a couple years ago named Stan, who is a black man who volunteered for Southwest Community Center, uh, an amazing nonprofit in Santa Ana that just feeds the hungry and the homeless off the street. You don't have to apply. If you're hungry, come in. It's just a beautiful, beautiful charity. And I went to his funeral and I was the only white person there. kind of sat in the back and I I saw Connie, who is the CEO of Southwest Community Center and a dear, dear friend of mine for 20 years. So she comes and sits by me and she said, Julie, I get three minutes to talk. I want you to come with me. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like I'm already only the white person in this funeral or this funeral that had the most passionate service I've ever been to. Like, I really need to join that church. I was so moved, so moved by the singing and oh, it was just, I go no Connie no 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 and she goes no not everyone knew Stan's other part of his life of what he did please come up with me and I just thought oh my God already I'm the only white person now I'm going to get up and speak and I had a chance to share about how Stan drove that van into our schools and and he talked with kids about where their food was going and how people experiencing hunger that is no fault of their own and he helped break those bridges those walls down and so. Like I said, I feel like people meet me and they're like, oh, white woman from Irvine trying to change the world. Right. And hey, it's <laughs> so interesting. Is- I'm like, well, just this- let me be me, you know, and, and I'll let you be you instead of saying, hey, this is Jeff. He's a black man from Compton. What are people going to think? No, he's my really good friend. He's a director at Compton Unified of partnerships and programs. And he's my dear friend. But we it's so easy to label people, you know, and, and like I said, my labeling a stereotype does not come with life challenges you know so i reckon i I recognize that but it's kind of funny to notice
2: well so that that's what i mean by the artificial um uh caricature of race i mean um you know um uh i i no longer feel it but that's because of of the of the confidence i now have in my early career people used to introduce me as somebody from the South, a black man from the South and and, and they would tout my degrees and my accomplishments and, you know, to validate why I'm there, you know? And I had a similar experience. I had several similar similar experiences just like you did. Uh, When I was an associate Dean at at Mississippi State, um, um, there were times when I represented the college at funerals and weddings of 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 colleagues and 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 other veterinarians that that did not necessarily have the progressive views that would have brought me to those kinds of events had i not been an official at the vet school on the other hand there were some weddings and funerals i went to where i truly wanted to be there because even if those individuals didn't share my views there was a connection with between me and that individual despite our race differences of uh, this part you know I remember I went to a funeral once and uh, uh, of an individual that I admired a lot we argued a lot, too, when he was alive, uh, uh, and I, I, I believe that I learned from him and that he learned from me, uh, and, I, and I realized that many of the opinions that he had, he had learned, you know, he was, he, ha, he had been indoctrinated in them, and at least he was willing to be, to allow me to test him in, 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 in my own way. And we actually became friends and I, I went to the funeral, not to represent Mississippi, the the College of Veterinary Medicine in Mississippi State, I went there because I considered him a friend with all of his warts and and differences, etc. And uh, somebody was sitting beside me and I had been asked to speak about the about my view of his importance to the profession in mississippi and somebody was sitting beside me and said uh and i was the only black person in the entire church mm-hmm. um by the way i wasn't very enthralled with the singing but i was enthralled oh, with the, um, uh, I, I was enthralled with with the uh, sanctimony of the of the of the procedures um and it was just as heartfelt In my, in my opinion, it wasn't, it wasn't as thrilling black churches know how to do it, you know, but, but still, it was still very moving for me. They were just about to ask me to come speak. And the person who was sitting beside me said, you know, you're the only black person here. Are you representing the college?
1: Like, why would you be here?
2: Yeah. Why would you be here? Yep. And, And right after they asked the question, they called my name and I just looked at him and said, I'll answer your question when I get up there. And so I started with his question. And I I started out by saying, it appears people are wondering why I'm here, or they think the only reason I'm here is to bring words from a professional perspective. And then I went on to say how I knew him personally, and how I respected him personally, and how important he was in my life. And oh, by the way, he was also important to the profession. And I am the associate dean at. Yeah. Uh, mississippi state and the dean could not be here so i'm representing the dean but again it goes back to the, something that peter and i are talking uh, talk about all the time and that's perspective if we don't understand the potential perspectives of people we won't understand how they come to the conclusions that they come to right
1: you and know? those stereotypes we put people in a box by our right and you know, the first time i went to compton the principal called the police on me
2: Yeah. And and even the stereotypes we put on ourselves, because I felt uncomfortable uh, by the question until I actually answered it publicly. Wow. And then I recognized that it was that most most of this was on me, not them.
1: Right. I think being comfortable with being uncomfortable, whoever said that, you know, that's where I live and that's where I thrive. You know, I want to be kind of pushing that. But it is it's it's. But again, it's it's while well, that stereotype can go both ways. It's interesting me being the only white person in the room versus you being the only black person and what people are thinking.
2: Yes. And it's oh, un- absolutely. school
1: no matter what. It's un- like I'm like, I want to stand up at the Compton school board meeting. The first meeting I was at, I was the only white person there. And the Compton is is at least 50% Latinx as well. But um and I was getting to know community leaders. Like I'm there. I do all the things for the right reasons, do the right things for the right reasons, right? But I also know people are sizing me up and deciding who yes. I am. Or I'm coming in to tell people how to run their community. Or I'm, you know, and it's like, you kind of just want to shed that as well. Even for me of like, I'm a youth advocate. I am I teach, we teach all over and we're just here about kids. We care about kids.
2: You said, you know, that, that when you first went to Compton they called the police on you. Why?
1: So it was funny, um, we were in our first first program in Compton Unified um, at Clinton Elementary, amazing elementary school. Um, And I had been communicating with Dr. White, who is a principal at Compton, who's black. Um, And we had a meeting, say it was at 10 o'clock to present teen kids. I got there early, of course, because I didn't wanna, I didn't know about the traffic. And so I was there about a half an hour early sitting in my car. And I got out to take a picture of the sign that said Clinton Elementary, you know, it was right by my car just because I was so excited to be at this new school. And all of a sudden I see this beautifully well-dressed woman. She is marching out into the parking lot and she was like, excuse me, can I help you? And I was like, <laughs> I, I'm Julie Hudash. I said, I have, a, I have an appointment with Dr. White in a few minutes. And she just stopped in her tracks. And she was like, okay, I literally was just calling the police because they assumed I was a social worker or a lawyer or someone who was a threat. I didn't look like I belonged on the campus as a parent. And the funny thing is, then we had our meeting. She's a dear friend. She's at the district now and a huge advocate and dear friend And that. Uh, so we get in our meeting and then the, the, the police come to our meeting, the, the Compton School Police, they're our partners. And so this guy walks in, who the police officer, who's black and he walks in, he goes, white lady in the blue suit. And I'm just like, you know, yeah, that's me, you know? And of course- But you know,
2: that there's a darker message in that too. It's not necessarily about you as much as it is about why your program is so important mm-hmm. because why should social workers be seen as a threat? Right why should lawyers who come there be seen as a threat? Or the
1: media, she thought I
2: was- Or or if the media comes. And the reason is, is because of the way social workers tend to act in BIPOC communities normally, the way lawyers tend to, the reasons that lawyers tend to be anywhere in BIPOC communities, it's the same threat that police tend to pose stereotypically. Yeah. that we expected and that's the darker message and until we start integrating not by race but by purpose
1: i, I mean imagine okay all, all white community and a black person is in the parking lot
2: i have a similar story i was in chicago at a meeting uh, at a veterinary meeting and a bank had just given a major donation to this organi- the veterinary organization and they invited the leadership to his home. He was a vice president of a bank. And I've never been in a home so fab as fabulous as this in whatever part of Chicago it was in. And I was talking to the host and he said, you know, you should take a walk around the neighborhood and just look at the houses in the neighborhood. And I took him up on it. I said, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. I had a drink in my hand. I'm walking around the neighborhood. I didn't make it two blocks before someone had called the cops. They drove up and asked me what I was doing in the neighborhood and why was I there with alcohol in my hand? And I was feeling comfortable until that point. So again, that's the other side of the coin.
1: Yeah, it's like the Ahmad Arbery situation.
2: You're a, if you're a stranger in the neighborhood, if you look like you don't belong, and I was sitting there thinking, well, I guess I, I could have never afforded a house in that neighborhood anyway, but I would never buy one now, you yeah. know?
1: I mean, I think I will say, um, I had an interesting kind of life experience. I know in your podcast, you ta- I, I, another one that I love was when you were talking to Peter, a really healthy, well, I you know, maybe not from the beginning kind of experience um, of learning about race and racism. And I know you guys talk about that. That was one of the episodes that, I guess it threads through all the episodes, but there was one in particular, um, Peter, where you were sharing kind of your experience when you first became aware of race and racism. And like, I was blissfully unaware of challenges around race and racism when I grew up. In Irvine at a young age, the episode really got me thinking um, because I've been doing a lot of thinking in our in our mission and my work after George Floyd's murder, and I have some things I want to share about that. But, but I ran track, so I ran track for eight years in high school and in college, and some just an evolution of experiences that I will share, and you can jump in and ask any questions. But I had teammates that were black, and I had teammates obviously that were white, and all different races, and. We also had the field event people, you know, we had women on our team who were really big, but I had friendships first based on just teammates and friendship and skills and talents. And um, and so in high school and competing at the, at the state level, I learned a lot about people's different backgrounds and such, right, in a team setting. But I had an experience, I'm not going to say any names or institutions, but I had an experience early in my college career that just blew me away. And I was competing on a team that was top 20 nationally and our sprinters are almost all black and our middle distance people are all white and you know our have our our field event women one who got a silver medal in the olympics who used to cry because everyone assumed she was gay she wasn't right so it's like why do we do this to people so we had a lot of interaction but one of the coaches got fired for uh, sexual harassment and it was really in talking with my team it was with all the Black, it was with the only people that were involved were were sprinters who were Black. And at that point, I just realized just, it was such an abuse of power. Because if he did that to me, and I didn't come from some big wealthy family, but my dad is an architect, he would have been sued or beat up. I mean, there's no way. He couldn't have done that without getting caught and getting, but see, my teammates that were from LA and different places, they needed their scholarships. Those scholarships were their lifeline, and they were amazing, talented students and athletes. And that's why he preyed on them. He preyed on them because if they said no or created a way, they might lose their scholarship. And I and I realized when I was listening to that episode, I thought, God, when and how? How did this all come about? How did I get to where I am now as an advocate for kids and creating systemic change in communities, especially communities of color? And I realized like that was like such a shock to me, you know? that those girls on my team, they were vulnerable, it made me even more angry now than I was angry then. And I was angry then. I left the school at that point, yeah. And I transferred to USC. I was co-captain on my track team with Yvette Bates, who is Black, incredible friends. My junior and senior year, I had four roommates. I was one of them. Two were Black. Uh, Myra was on my track team and Yvette Bates um, uh, or Yvonne played volleyball at USC. And we had such strong friendships. So like my relationships you know of getting to know people of different backgrounds were shared amongst being in a team right and a a space that and and my roommates who are black made jokes all the time like we really joke back and forth in a way that was very loving like they would make fun of me and I mean I don't know that was we were roommates right and so And so I think I was lucky to build these friendships in a way on a team that gave me some insight. And then the thing that changed my life was my senior year in college um, as an athlete at USC, they would send us out like dog and pony show into South Central LA schools in our uniforms to talk to the kids about, you know, believing in themselves. And I'll tell you, it hit me like a pound of boulders when I went because I was a skinny white miler and I was with football players and basketball players, baseball players from USC. So the kids, they were not interested in me really, for the most part, they were interested in the football players. And it was the first time I really witnessed the inequities in education. It was shocking to me. I grew up in Irvine. I had a set of textbooks at home and some at school. So my back didn't hurt. Oh wow backpack, right? Wait a minute, hold
2: hold it. I'm sorry. I just learned something. You all had two sets of books?
1: The real heavy ones, yeah.
2: Well, no wonder you had a set to give to us.
1: (laughs) I just, but then I saw these kids that didn't even have supplies that were sharing books, and they were so excited to be seen. They were so excited to look up to people who said, you know, believe in your try hard, do well in school. Like, these are the ways you can and I was just sitting there, similar like I was with Captain Steve, with talking to the students when they saved Jeremy's life. And I was like, the, I didn't know then what I wanted to do. I didn't know what it would look like. I had no idea. But at that point, I knew, I knew things weren't fair. And I knew the kids there deserved every little bit as they were equally as capable and brilliant. And But like, the system doesn't give equal. And, and so... I ended up working in corporate America for a while and I got married and, um, had a few kids and went to grad school for a while. And I just was like, so hungry and thirsty for meaning and purpose in this area, but I didn't know how to do it. And,
2: uh, Julie, Julie, thank you so much for that story. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for joining us for another courageous conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.